Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying by your spirit, through your word, for the good of us, your people. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I received some training in shooting and editing video. Little did I know that in a global pandemic, those skills would come in so useful. Now, I'm a long way from being an expert, but some of the things I learned were really interesting. For example, framing your camera shots is a bit like speaking a language. Now, in any language, you have uh, grammar and syntax and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like that when you're shooting and framing video. Particularly when you're uh, filming people, there are a range of standard shots, almost like a, a language has standard verbs and nouns and stuff. And if you watch television with your brain in gear, you'll notice that these standard shots get used all the time. They actually make sense of the storyline. Whether you know this or not, it's like a language which helps you understand what's going on. For example, this is a long shot, sometimes called a wide shot. This is a medium shot, sometimes called a three-quarter shot. This is a mid-shot. And this, if we can come in close, Paul... This that you're watching on right now is called a medium close-up. So there you go. You'll never watch the telly in the same way. Look out for those shots. Now, I mention all of that because in a strange way, it helps us to get into this next section of the Song of Songs. I suppose those different camera shots are a bit of a metaphor for life and relationships. In life, there are some people we know, but only from a distance. We have some sense of who they are, but we never get to know them closely. Then there are others we will more know more closely, like this medium close-up now. And in our church family, remember we do call it a church family, we want to be like that. There's a depth of close relationship we, we want to have and to cultivate as we share life and follow Jesus together in this church. But in TV, there are other shots too. There's the close-up, and then there's the extreme close-up. Now, I guess there aren't many people in life that we get to know in extreme close-up. People who see us every day, in good times and in bad, people we share close, intimate moments with. But in this next section of the Song of Songs, we see two people doing just that. Our two lovers, the man and the woman, are here in extreme close-up. And it's as if through their love poetry, we get to eavesdrop on their most intimate conversations. We'll get into that in a moment. For now, just remember what the Song of Songs is. It's a piece of intimate and, yes, sexually charged love poetry between two young lovers who are soon to be married. 
Now, in dealing with this kind of intimacy, remember the Song of Songs is neither prudish nor pornographic. On the one hand, the book is unembarrassed to talk about sex. On the other hand, it's never crude. And the Song of Songs is clear that God's design is that sex is reserved only for marriage. Now, given how important intimate love, marriage relationships are to our society, even if you're not married, maybe it shouldn't come as any surprise to us that the Bible speaks in many places to these issues. Now, we should remember, too, that the Song of Songs really is a piece of love poetry between two people. It's not an allegory where every word or verse is not really about our couple, but has some sort of secret coded other meaning that's only about God and not about people. No, no, it is about human love. But we also remember that in the Bible, human marriage relationships are always set against a backdrop of God's love for his people. In the scriptures, God himself, and often the Lord Jesus, is pictured as a bridegroom. And we, his church, are called his bride. And so in that way, this book has lots to teach us, not just about human love, although that's important, but about the deep love that God has for his people and our devotion for him as well. And that's an important reminder to us, isn't it? That our relationship with God is just that, a relationship. Our prayer and our hope should be that this book will, will awaken in us love and desire for God. Just listen to what Philip Ryken says. Spiritually speaking, most of us live as if we were single rather than married. Married people always have to give some consideration to their spouses, whereas single people have much more control of their time, their money, and their life decisions, both big and small. Unfortunately, this is the way that many of us operate spiritually. Occasionally, we remember that we are betrothed to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of heaven, but most of the time, we operate independently. Let's pray that Song of Songs would awaken in us love and desire for God. Anyway, enough preamble. Let's go as we zoom in on the extreme close-up and eavesdrop on our lover's conversation. Here's the first heading tonight. Number one, delighting in beauty. Let's listen to our lovers now. Chapter one, verse 15. The man says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she replies, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. So here we are. Our lovers are face to face speaking words of affection. Now, this means their relationship has a chance to grow and develop through this intimate conversation. The public masks are off. The defensiveness that most of us project most of the time is gone. Here are two people very close, face to face, being vulnerable, declaring love. Very few people get 
close enough to really know us deeply and intimately like this. And despite the dignified, restrained way that they talk, make no bones about it, they desire each other sexually. And that desire is important in marriage. We stressed last week back in chapter one that if you are thinking of marrying, you must marry A, a Christian, and B, someone who is a good friend and companion. And those are, it seems to me, the most important things in marriage. But this intimacy reminds us as well that that sexual attraction is not irrelevant. The woman talks of their future marriage bed saying that it will be verdant, which implies it's lush and green. You might say fruitful and fertile. Now, you can draw your own conclusions, but it appears that she has in mind a, a healthy sex life when they do eventually get married. Notice as well here the importance of telling someone that you love them. This doesn't just go for married couples, of course. It's a relevant lesson for all our close friends and family, also for parents to tell their children. Our couple are not embarrassed to say that they love each other. By contrast, how many children encounter emotional problems later in life because their parents just never told them they were loved? I saw Keir Starmer on TV just this last week saying something similar about his relationship with his own father. If you love someone, if you appreciate them, tell them. I know we're very British, but tell them. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Don't assume that your friend or your spouse or your child knows that you love them. Tell them. The woman here particularly needs reassurance. Do you remember last week that we saw her anxieties about her looks? This is so contemporary, isn't it? Women, particularly, struggling with the impossibly high standards of physical beauty that our culture imposes. And we see that again here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 now. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, at first glance, you might think she's boasting about her beauty, you know, comparing herself with beautiful flowers. But no, a rose of Sharon or a lily of the valley, these were common wildflowers, almost like weeds in your garden. So again, we see that she feels anxious about her appearance. I look a bit of a weed, she's saying. But the man's response is just perfect. Verse two, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. He says, well, if you're a common lily, You must be a lily among thorns. And so again, he encourages her that in his eyes, she's beautiful. To him, she has a natural, God-given beauty. And I say God-given because remember how Jesus picks up a similar theme. Matthew uh, Matthew 6, verse 28. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field are grown. 
They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. In other words, just as the common lily is given a natural beauty by our creator God, so this woman, soon to be the man's wife, is endowed with natural beauty by God. So appreciate the wonder and the God-given beauty in those around you. Men, this applies to the way that we talk about our wives if we're married. Men, don't talk down to your wife. Don't talk your wife down. There are plenty of people doing both of those things. Instead, consider carefully how you speak to her and about her in private and in public. Words which will build her up and assure her of your love. So if you're married, you can see there are some lessons here for how we ought to delight in our spouse, how we should speak to them and about them. And these lessons, of course, spill over, not just in marriage, but but in the way that we speak to all of our loved ones. But what about God? What, What do we see of the Lord here? Well, we see a glimpse here of what it means for God to love us. And we often say that, don't we? Oh, God loves us, or God is love. You know, these are the things that trip off the tongue. We we don't even think about them. But look at what lovers do. They speak words of love and devotion to one another. What an extraordinary thought that the God who loves us would speak words of love to you and I. What a thought. He loves you. And he loves us, his church. There was a a great debate not so long ago about contemporary Christian songs. I think in the 1990s in in particular, that was really my decade growing up, there were lots of, of contemporary worship songs which were described as being a bit soppy and wet. They were often insultingly called Jesus is my girlfriend songs because they emphasized emotions and feelings of love toward the Lord. For example, here's a song with lyrics like that. The simplest of all love songs I want to bring to you so I let my words be few. Jesus, I am so in love with you. Now that song was sometimes mocked for being theologically lightweight. And some people said, not me, but some people said it was a bit girly. The critique was, oh, men won't want to sing words like that, all this like lovey-dovey stuff, come on. Now, like everything in life, what we actually need is, is balance. If we only sang songs like that, that would be a poor diet for our singing. That's why we sing psalms and ancient hymns and modern songs. There's a variety in our diet, if you like. That's good. But the Song of Songs makes it quite clear that there is a place for love songs to God, if I can put it that way. Of course, our relationship with God is about more than just emotion. 
If we base it all on emotion, that is a great mistake. Our relationship with him is about our minds and our will. It is about obedience. It is about knowing God with my mind as well as feeling him in my heart. It's about more than emotions, but it's not about less than emotion. We should be deeply moved by God's love for us. And as these two lovers delight in in one another's beauty, it's a reminder of the beauty of Christ. Not a physical beauty. Remember, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him in his appearance. No, no, the, the beauty of his character. The beauty of his devotion for us. The beauty of his sacrificial giving of himself for his beloved, his church. Elsewhere, the Song of Songs says, love is strong as death. That's the death that Jesus tasted for us. So delight in beauty, delight in Jesus. But secondly, making a home. Uh, You'll have noticed that though the couple are not yet married and therefore not yet sleeping together or living together, the woman has already started to think about their marriage bed. Typical engaged couple, I guess. But the bloke goes one step further. He starts planning their future home. Chapter 1, verse 17. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. Now, the language is kind of poetic, of course, because this is a poem, but the message is clear. The home they will make together will be stable and solid and long-lasting. And, of course, that's not just a a comment on, on their house, the building in which they live. It's really a comment on their marriage, which will also be stable and solid and long lasting. And again, our culture today has so much it needs to learn from this ancient wisdom. Statistics from 2017 show that after 30 years, the cumulative divorce rate is nearly 45%. In other words, half of all marriages don't go the distance, they end in divorce. Now, divorce rates have dropped a little in recent years, but that probably just reflects the fact that fewer people are even getting married in the first place. These two lovers approach marriage with the absolute cast-iron mindset that their marriage is for life. This was the best advice ever given to us before we got married. Morag and I were told, when you approach your marriage, think about it this way. There is no back door. If both husband and wife approach marriage like that, you might think it sounds very restrictive. Lots of people today want to have a different approach and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll get married and we'll, we'll see how it goes. If it works out, great. If not, well, I'm out of here. But that is a profoundly unstable foundation on which to build a marriage. If both husband and wife are are continually unsure if the other is about to leave, well, that brings great uncertainty, great anxiety. It means you will never discuss and deal with your problems because you'll be so afraid to, to raise the problems in case the other one leaves. 
Whereas if both husband and wife know that there is no back door, that you are together forever, come what may, well then that's a stable foundation. We can bring up and discuss and work through our problems knowing that whatever they are, the other party's not about to leave. Far from being restrictive, that is the only sure foundation on which to build your marriage. That is the best advice we were ever given before we were married. But again, what does all of this say about the Lord? If this earthly marriage will last a lifetime, well, the marriage of Christ to his people will last many lifetimes. An eternity, in fact. Remember what we've learned recently in in Ephesians. God chose us to be his people before the creation of the world. In other words, he chose us in eternity past. And we will be his people for eternity into the future. The marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, has given you, if you're a Christian, an eternally stable home in the family of God. Delighting in beauty, making a home. Thirdly, longing for a good man. We hand over to the woman again, verse 3. Like an apple tree among the leaves of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banqueting hall. Let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. For I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. The question is this. What do all of these compliments tell us about the character of the man she loves? Well, we need to get inside the poetry and the metaphors a bit to find the meaning. First, he's described as an apple tree, which means he is stable and strong. He's a leader, you might say. And the woman delights, as she puts it, to sit in his shade. Next, it also means that he's a provider. See, just as the tree provides sweet fruit, so this man will provide for his wife. And you see it again in verse 4. He leads her to a feast, a banquet. And there's the mention of the apples and the raisins and all the rest of it. Then there's the banner. His banner over me is love, verse 4. Now, the banner is a kind of military reference. In, in battle, right, that the banner would have flown on a big pole above the, the, the ranks of the army. It, it was a kind of rallying point. It was a symbol of, of, of leadership and of loyalty and of belonging to your side. Put it all together, and you have a man who is a strong leader who provides and who shades his wife from the trials of life. Now, we are encountering here what our culture might call some gender stereotypes. Now, our society has a very low view of this 
sort of thing. Many people today would say that the idea that men should lead and show strength and provide are old-fashioned nonsense, sexist even. Although it's quite telling, I I read a few surveys this week uh, on on, uh, what the majority of women want in a man. If anyone's going through my internet search history, that's why I was looking for that. It's very interesting that many of these characteristics are what the surveys find that women do want in a man. But anyway, let me make a few comments on what we might call gender stereotypes. Firstly, we can push gender stereotypes too far, and that can be unhelpful. There's great variety in men and in women. We're all different, unique. God has made us that way, so don't push gender stereotypes too far. Having said that, we must acknowledge that gender stereotypes exist for a reason. That is that men and women, although they are utterly equal in God's sight, in in value and in worth, they're also not the same. Again, our culture is hugely confused about this. But scripture says that God has made us male and female, equal, but also different. We are complementary in our character and in our roles. And God is clear in his word that, that we men do have a particular responsibility to lead, especially in our homes and especially in the church, and particularly to provide spiritual leadership. And when women are stepping up into those roles, it tends to be because we men have abdicated our responsibility. It's interesting that those studies I read this week showed that women want strong men, and by that, they mean strong morally as well as spiritually. Lastly, on gender stereotypes, notice how the man also explodes some of our ideas about gender stereotypes. See, he's physically strong, yes. A leader, yes. A protector and provider, yes. But he's also not crass or crude or macho. He's not full of himself. He doesn't talk over his wife. He's not a mansplainer. In fact, she does most of the talking here. He has a military banner, yes. But his banner is love. So he's strong, but he's also tender. You might say, if this is not too cheesy, he has muscles, but he also has morals. He loves his wife, but he also loves the Lord. We don't have too many young men in our church, and actually that in itself is a real problem, which needs to be a matter for prayer and action for us. But young Christian men, if you are listening, do yourself and your future wife a favor. Get serious now about following Jesus. Get serious now about being a man of integrity. Get serious now about taking responsibility. That is both the husband your future wife will want and it's the calling God has on your life, whether you end up married or not. And again, all of this points us to Christ. 
the God of all power and might, who's also tender and loving. The high and holy one, high and exalted, reigning and ruling, who made himself nothing. Why? For the sake of others. Who humbled himself for us to save his people. And now we sit, as it were, in his shade. He is our protector and provider. He has led us to his banqueting table, the feast of heaven that we look forward to and that we anticipate every time we celebrate communion together. His banner over us is love. So we've seen delighting in beauty, making a home, longing for a good man, and lastly, we'll give the last word to the woman, waiting for passion. Being nearly married, and frankly, having been aroused with desire for her husband, this young woman nonetheless ends her peace today with a strong word of warning and command. Verse 7, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, meaning until the right time. Now, we often get imagery like this in the book, does or deer, I think, gazelles. These are beautiful animals, and she's, she's sort of using them figuratively to speak about the, the beauty and the mystery and the power of sex. And in the ancient world, because these animals are quite fertile, and we usually talk about rabbits, I guess they talked about gazelles. Anyway, they were used as symbols for, for sex. But as the woman gives this parting warning, she's not just thinking about sex, she's also thinking about God. So in the Hebrew here, the words for gazelle and doe, when put together, sound similar to the words for Lord and Almighty. So she's making a play on words. She's saying when it comes to sex, remember God. She's saying, in the name of God, let me give you a warning about sex. It's as if she's saying, the warning about, I'm about to give you is serious and, and God is my witness. Something like that. So watch the warning. End of verse 7. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. She will repeat that warning again later in the Song of Songs. She's saying sexual desire can be a good thing, but it's also a powerful thing. It's better left alone until the right time. And the right time in the Song of Songs is always marriage. Now, of course, our culture wants to do the complete opposite of this. It has never been harder to remain sexually pure and celibate outside of heterosexual marriage. Our culture wants to grab our attention with sex on the billboards, in the adverts, and on the internet, which is flooded with porn. Today, half of 11-year-olds admitted to having seen porn in one recent survey by the British Board of Film Classification. And I think we should notice that, that, that that's just the ones who admitted it. 
So awash is the internet that 60% of those who admitted to having seen it, aged 11, said they came across it accidentally at first. We have created a culture that seeks to awaken sex and sexual curiosity and exploration at younger and younger and younger ages. It is now profoundly countercultural. In fact, I would say it is a revolutionary idea to keep sex for marriage. But that is the command of God, and it's the warning the woman gives us. Now, lots of people will respond. Maybe you're listening to this tonight and you're thinking, why is the church so anti-sex? And the answer is, you're wrong, we're not. The truth is, sex is like fire. Whether or not it's good for us depends very much on where it is. Sex in marriage is like a fire in your stove on a winter's day. It brings warmth and comfort and joy. God says sex outside of marriage is like fire going up your curtains and engulfing your living room. Sex in marriage is so good because it is a powerful glue that bonds us together for life. Sex outside of marriage is harmful precisely because of that same power. Sleeping with anybody else but your spouse either bonds you to them in inappropriate or hurtful ways or else you end up just cheapening the gift of sex and over time robbing it of its power. According to this young woman, this is not some fushty old geezer like me giving you this advice, it's the woman in the scene. She's about to get married. She's eager to to know her husband and yet she gives the warning. She says, true love waits. From the the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s to the present day, we older generations have left the younger with a society that, that is in a state of dysfunctional chaos when it comes to sex. Even our non-Christian culture is now starting to notice this. Now, in calling us to keep sex for marriage, there's no doubt God is asking us to, to lay aside some of our instincts and our desires. That's hard. And it's costly. Let's make no mistake, it, it is an act of self-denial for those who are not married or not yet married. But when God calls us to acts of self-denial, it it really just begs the question, do we trust God? Do we believe that the God who gave us sex knows how it works? Will we take him at his word when he tells us what is helpful and what is harmful? Will we believe him when he tells us what will rightly build a long-lasting marriage and what will harm it or destroy it or hurt others? Will we believe God? And so I, I do need to pick up these strong words of warning the woman gives and that God gives to us tonight. If you're having sex outside of marriage for your own good, For the good of your soul, for the sake of your salvation, stop. 
Self-control is hard, but it's not bad for us, it's good for us. In fact, there are all kinds of desires every day in life that we need to exercise self-control over. If not, we risk becoming like Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. A life without self-control quickly becomes a wreck, in other words. And our society has wrecked itself over this very issue. The reason God tells us not to awaken sexual desire before the right time is very simple. When we share sexual intimacy with the wrong person at the wrong time, or when we gratify these desires only for our own benefit, we we destroy relationships ultimately. One commentator put it like this, sex is like superglue. It's designed to form a lifelong bond between husband and and wife. Now you may very well respond and say, this is too hard. Or Peter, what about me? Uh, I'm, I'm not married, I, I'm single. And as far as I can see, I will remain single. Is my life not reduced or, or diminished? To which the answer must be Jesus. The most completely human man who ever lived. The most complete life. And yet he never had sex. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in every way. So that means including tempted with sex. And yet Jesus, the most perfect man who never lived. The most full and complete life was a life without sex. So if we're single or same-sex attracted, we're called to celibacy for the glory of God and for the good of our souls. If we're married, we're called to fidelity to the glory of God and for the good of our souls. And whoever we are, we are called to Jesus, a man who never had sex, yet lived the most full, complete, and most truly human life there has ever been. And so last of all, we draw back from human relationships to our love bond with Christ himself. Listen to what Ian Duguid says. Uh, He'll ask us a searching question, and we'll end with his words. If you are married to Christ, is that relationship at the center of your thinking? Do you find yourself dreaming about him, lost in amazement at how wonderful Christ is, how incredible it is that he should love you, and longing for more of his presence? Do you constantly wear out your friends and relations with your endless chatter about how wonderful your beloved is? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would awaken our hearts with desire for Christ in all of his beauty. We pray that you would help us, whatever our situation, to trust him on matters of sex and marriage and relationships. Lord, you know our struggles. You know our sins. We thank you for the cross, that there is abundant grace for the worst of sinners. 
Wash us clean, Lord, we pray. And help us to live lives that trust you, that take you at your word, and that are filled with the joy of being the beloved of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.